Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Friday night again. Oh, can't see my face. No, it's it's Larry Santoro. Come on in. It's dark. It's late. Uh, tonight, I'm in the nook of our apartment. It's a little space around the corner from everything. It's where friends stay when they flap into town and have nowhere else to go. A lot of writers have done that. Our poet tonight, Marie Alexander, is one of them. More of that later. But sit. Relax. The nook is dark. Bookshelves to the ceiling on three walls, overfilled, leaning. Things, old memories, dangling. Shadows. Pictures on the fourth wall. Some of them, some of them are very disturbing. Eh, That's okay. Those who have stayed here haven't minded. They seem to like the place. One writer chum who was a regular in the nook a few years ago said it was the most comfortable place he slept in a long, long time. Wonder why. One reason I decided to do Tales to Terrify, that's what you're here for, isn't it? Tales to Terrify. One reason was that I thought it might one day begin to feel here a little like what life was like growing up back in the old century. Television. Didn't have one until pretty late in my kidhood. Before that, the family gathered in the dimness, listened to radio. Uh, Then a wonder world of adventure, chills, music, comedy. And it all took place in the head My great Gildersleeve was, I'm sure, vastly different from my mother's. Uh, The grandparents' view of the inner sanctum was worlds apart from mine. But there we were, all of us, all joined in the silent dark listening, seeing in our hearts worlds of difference, all spun from the same sounds. I hope we can do a little of that here. So 
snuggle in the dark, and share some stories. Story. Story is what Tim Wagoner's little tale, Unwoven, is about. There's no fact article tonight, by the way. That's just the way it is. Instead, I thought we'd have a bit of uh, flash fiction, a story we go into and get out of in a few hundred well-chosen words. Tim Wagoner began choosing words at age five. He created a comic book version of King Kong vs. Godzilla, but did it on a stenographer's pad. <laughs> Clever lad. A few more years, and he began selling professionally. Since then, he's published more than 20 novels and two short story collections. He's had articles on writing in Writer's Digest and Writer's Journal, among others. He teaches creative writing at Sinclair Community College and in Seton Hill University's Master of Fine Arts in Writing Popular Fiction program. And, of course, like all of us, he hopes to continue writing and teaching until he drops dead, after which he wants to be stuffed, mounted, and placed in front of his computer terminal. So here, read for us by Diane Severson, is Unwoven. You're staring at your laptop screen, trying to think of the next word to write, when a tiny movement catches your eye. At first, you think it's some kind of computer glitch, that some small image is randomly flickering in the upper left corner of the screen. But when you shift your gaze to check it out, you see that a spider has crawled onto your computer. You're startled. You hate spiders, so much so that you experience a nauseating twist in your gut and your skin starts itching all over as if a million of the spider's relatives are scuttling over your body. Without thinking, you grip the top of the screen and slam it shut onto the keyboard. Then you yank your hand away from the computer as if you've been burned. You sit there for several long seconds, unable to rise from the dining table chair heart pounding in your ears, breath coming in rapid, nervous dog pants. Your eyes dart anxiously back and forth, examining the seam where the two halves of the laptop meet, waiting to see where the spider will emerge. But after some time has passed, minutes, hours, it's impossible to say, there has been no sign of the spider, and your pulse slows. Your breathing eases. You smile with satisfaction. Gotcha, you little bastard. Leaving your laptop closed, you stand up and walk out of the dining room, past rows of recessed shelves filled with hardback books, one of the reasons you love to write in here, and head into the kitchen. Your nausea's subdued a bit, and you're starting to feel embarrassed for overreacting. It's a good thing neither the kids nor your husband is home. Sarah would be grossed out, and her younger brother Eric would be sad that an innocent spider died. And Mark, well, Mark is Mark. Being overwhelmed by emotion isn't something he understands, let alone sympathizes with. You realize that Eric would be especially upset over the spider's death. Just yesterday you read a book to him that he'd brought home from the kindergarten library, a book about spiders really about one spider, a figure from African folklore called Anansi. You'd never heard of him before, and because he was a spider, you were reluctant to read the book to Eric at first. 
but you thumbed through the pages, suppressing a shudder, and saw that a Nancy was drawn standing upright like a human, and he had a face that resembled that of an African-American male. A human face. Kind, if somewhat mischievous, a face that reassured you, and you were able to read the story to Eric without much trouble. Despite how you feel about spiders, the tale was an interesting one, especially to you, since you're a writer. It told of a time when there were no stories in the world because Sky God hoarded them all for himself, and Nancy didn't think this situation was fair. So, through a combination of guile and cleverness, Nancy tricked Sky God into giving him the stories, and when the spider returned to Earth, he shared those stories with the entire world. That's why, the book ended, all stories are called Anansi Tales. Eric loved the story, mostly because of the cute illustrations, but you thought it was a good metaphor for how writers find inspiration. And you had to admit that a spider, with its ability to weave separate strands of silk into a web, made an effective patron spirit for storytellers. Eric, in his child's way, had recognized the metaphor as well. Maybe that's where you get your stories, Mommy. And Nancy brings them. All in all, a cute little book. Not that it could ever change your mind about spiders. Damn creepy pests. In the kitchen, you tear off a few paper towels from the roll hanging beneath the cupboard next to the sink and head back into the dining room. Now that your fear has dwindled away to almost nothing, you're beginning to think practically again. You have no idea if smushed spider guts can leak between the keys and get into the electronics underneath, but you figure you'd better clear away the messy remains of Mr. Spider before he takes his final revenge and ruins your brand new thousand-dollar laptop. You sit down in front of the closed computer, gripping the paper towels so hard they've become a wadded ball. You take a deep breath, count to three, and with your free hand, open the laptop. You stare for a moment not quite able to understand what you're seeing, or rather not seeing. There is no squished spider, no guts, no blood, no crushed black body with legs curled inward in death. The screen and keyboard are both completely clean. There's something else weird. The screen is blank. The personal essay you'd been working on, a reminiscence about walking alone outside during a snowy night when you were a child in Oregon, is gone. You were almost finished with it, and it had been turning out great. You enjoy writing fiction, but you've always found nonfiction more satisfying, both artistically and emotionally. As he once told Mark, all of our lives are stories, aren't they? It's what we're made of, really, one story after another. Of course, he'd had no idea what you were talking about. Frantically, you put the paper towel wad aside and opened the word processing program's memory files to search for your essay. But it's not there. None of your stories, articles, or essays are there either. The program's memory has somehow been erased. Your flash drive is sitting on the dining table to the right of your laptop. You plug it into the computer's front port to check your backup files. Please, please, please. They're gone too. The flash drive is empty. A thought crosses your mind then. A crazy, awful thought. That spider. What if it had been a Nancy, coming to help you with your essay? Maybe the spider was even bringing it to you, like an eight-legged muse. After all, all stories are Nancy tales, right? It's a ludicrous thought, 
and you try to force a laugh to acknowledge the absurdity, but the only sound that comes out of your throat is a choking gasp. You've killed a Nancy. You've killed all the stories in the world. You glance over your shoulder at the built-in shelves behind the dining table, and you wish you were surprised to see that, like your laptop and flash drive, they're empty. The books, the stories, are gone. A detached numbness begins creeping over you as you look at the cursor blinking on the computer screen. You poise trembling fingers over the keyboard and begin to type. But though your fingers depress key after key, no letters appear on the screen, no words. The numbness grows stronger, and you can't feel your fingers touch the keys, can't feel your body at all anymore. It's almost like what you imagine freezing to death must feel like, except it's not really cold, it's just sensation of profound nothingness. Your last thought, before you fade into non-existence, is to recall one more time what you told Mark. All of our lives are stories, aren't they? Several quiet seconds pass in the now-empty house, and then, from somewhere within the laptop's casing, comes the high-pitched, skittery-scratchy sound of laughter. Well, now you've done it, Tim. No wonder I've been having trouble with Sam Clemens Tries the Water. It's a book I've been trying to finish for the last six months. Thanks. <laughs> no, really, thanks, Tim. Narration on Unwoven was from an old friend, Diane Severson. Diane handles the Poetry Planet segments on the Starship Sofa. In her own life, she is a singer of uncommon voice and grace. She's from Madison, Wisconsin, but currently lives in Germany with her husband, Magnus Mori, and their son, Dante. So thanks, Diane. Looking forward to seeing you again and hearing more from you soon. Poetry. Maria Alexander. She's good. I've known her since my first world horror convention, oh, many, many years ago. She was the really sweet and friendly goth woman with the Wild Thing backpack. She once hung around in Chicago for a few days after a world horror con and stayed in the nook where I am now. I took her on a tour of the locations for John Cusack's film High Fidelity here in my neighborhood. I also took her on a guided tour through Graceland Cemetery. That's a most interesting place, by the way. It's just up the way. Look it up online. Graceland Cemetery, Chicago. A lot of famous people live there. This year, Maria is up for a Bram Stoker Award. She deserves it. Now, here she is, reading her poem, The Little One. The Little One by Maria Alexander, translated from the French poem, Petite. When I was little, I hid myself in the armoire where the cobwebs trembled, lilac and livid, flowing from the fabrics. When I was little, 
I danced with the strange children where the trees grow dark and wild, whispering their secrets. When I was little, I played between the mausoleums where the flowers moldered, bitter and bent, blackening the angels. When I was little, sometimes the dead spoke. But when you are little, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. So I listened. Thanks, Maria. Thanks for reading. Thanks for offering. Maria's Stoker Hopeful Story Collection is called At Louche Ends, Poetry for the Decadent, the Damned, and the Absinthe-Minded. Gawker magazine described it as an exercise in girding one's broken heart and uncrossing one's fish-netted legs with an adamant load of new romantic firepower. And she designs and co-writes kids' games with the Imagineers at Disney for the online HabitHeroes.com. You can find her at MariaAlexander.net, or you can just click on the button below. Tonight's main fiction piece is by British writer Kim Newman, and it's one of those tales that I loved listening to in the dark alone or with a chum or two. It's a chilly little piece that pays the listener well for attention and silence. And the title alone sends chills. Is anyone there? Is there anybody there? By Kim Newman. Read by Kim Lakin Smith. Is there a presence? asked Irene. The parlour was darker and chillier than it had been moments ago. At the bottoms of the heavy curtains, tassels stirred like the fronds of a deep sea plant. Irene Dobson, Madame Irina to her sitters, was alert to tiny changes in a room that might preface the arrival of a visitor from beyond the veil. The fissing and dimming of still and trusted electric lamps, so much less impressive than the shrinking and bluing of gaslight flames she remembered from her earliest seances. A clamminess in the draught, as fog-like, cold rose from the carpeted floor. The minute crackle of static electricity, making hair lift and pores prickle. The tart taste of pennies in her mouth. Is there a traveller from afar? she asked, opening her inner eye. The planchette twitched, Miss Walter David's fingers withdrew in a flinch. She had felt the definite movement. Irene glanced at the no longer young woman 
in the chair beside hers, shrinking away for the moment. The fear light in the sitter's eyes was the beginning of true belief. To Irene, it was like a tug on a fishing line, the satisfying twinge of the hook going in. This was a familiar stage on the typical sitter's journey from scepticism to fanaticism. This woman was wealthy. Soon, Irene would taste not copper, but silver, eventually gold. Wordlessly, she encouraged Miss Walter David to place her fingertips on the planchette again to restore balance. Open on the round table before them was a thin sheet of wood, hinged like an oversized chessboard. Upon the board's smoothly papered and polished surface was a circle. The letters of the alphabet picked out in curlicue. Corners were marked for yes, we, oui, ja, and no. The planchette, a pointer on marble casters, was a triangular arrowhead shape. Irene and Miss Walter David lightly touched fingers to the lower point of the planchette, and the tip quivered. Is there anybody there? Miss Walter David asked. This sitter was bereft of a fiance, an officer who had come through the trenches but succumbed to influenza upon return to civilian life. Miss Walter David was searching for balm to soothe her sense of hideous unfairness and had come at last to Madame Irina's parlour. Is there? The planchette moved sharply. Miss Walter David hissed in surprise. Irene felt the presence, stronger than usual, and knew it could be tamed. She was no fraud, relying on conjuring tricks, but her understanding of the world beyond the veil was very different than that which she wished her sitters to have. All spirits could be made to do what she wished them to do. If they thought themselves grown beyond hurt, they were sorely in error. The planchette, genuinely independent of the light touches of medium and sitter, stabbed towards a corner of the board, but stopped surprisingly short. Why? Not yes, but the why of the circular alphabet. The spirits often used initials to express themselves, but Madame had never encountered one who neglected the convenience of the yes and no corner. She did not let Miss Walter David see her surprise. Have you a name? Why again? Not yes. Was why the beginning of a name? Young man? Yokohama? Israel? What is it? She was almost impatient. The planchette began a circular movement, darting at letters, using the lower tips of the planchette as well as the pointer. That also was unusual, and took an instant or two to digest. M, S, T, 
A-R-M-N-D. Mustamund, said Miss Walter David. Irene understood. Have you a message for anyone here, Mastermind? Why? For whom? You. For Ursula? Miss Walter David's Christian name was Ursula. N. You. You? You, said Miss Walter David. You! This was not a development Irene liked a bit. There were two prospects in his chat room. Women, or at least they said they were. Boyd didn't necessarily believe them. Some users thought they were clever. Boyd was primarily mastermind, but had other login names. Some male, some female, some neutral. For each ISDN line, he had a different code name and e-address, non-traceable to his physical address. He lived online, really. This flat in Highgate was just a place to store the meat. There was nothing he couldn't get by playing the web, which responded to his touch like a harpsichord to a master's fingers. There were always back doors. His major female ident was caress, aggressively sexual. He imagined her as a porn site Cleopatra Jones, a black model with dom tendencies. He kept a more puritanical, shockable ident, schoolgirl, as backup to cut in when caress became too outrageous. These two users weren't tricky, though. They were clear. Virgins, just the way he liked them. He guessed they were showing themselves nakedly to the room, with no deception. Irene D. Ursula W. D. Their messages typed out laboriously, appearing on his master monitor a word at a time. He initiated searches, took off at more on their handles... His system was smart enough to come up with a birth name, a physical address, financial details, and, more often than not, a JPEG image from even the most casually assumed one-use logon name. Virgins never realised that their presences always left ripples. Boyd knew how to piggyback any one of a dozen official and unofficial trackers and routinely pulled up information on anyone with whom he had even the most casual, wary dealings. Irene D. Have you a message for anyone here, Mastermind? Boyd stabbed a key. Why? Irene D. For whom? You. Irene D. For Ursula? N-U. Irene D. U. Ursula W.D. U. At least one of them got it. Irene D. Why didn't she just tag herself I-D or I-D? Was just slow. That didn't matter. 
She was the one Boyd had spotted as a natural. Something about her blank words gave her away. She had confidence and ignorance. While her friend, they were in contact, maybe even in the same physical room, at least understood she knew nothing, that she had stepped into deep space and all the rules were changed. Irene D. Her logon was probably a variant on the poor girl's real name. Thought she was in control. She would unravel very easily. Almost no challenge at all. A message for you, I.D., he typed. He sat on a reinforced swivel chair with optimum back supports and buttocks spread, surveying a semicircle of keyboards and monitors, all hooked up to separate lines and accounts, all feeding into the master monitor. When using two or more idents, he could swivel or roll from board to board, taking seconds to comedian shift. He could be five or six people in any given minute, dazzle a solo into thinking she, and it almost always was a she, was in a buzzing chat room with a lively crowd, when she was actually alone with him, growing more vulnerable with each stroke and line, more open to his hooks and grapples, her back doors flapping in the wind. I know who you are. Always a classic. Always went to the heart. He glanced at the leftmost screen, still searching. No details yet. His system was usually faster than this. Nothing on either of them, on Irene or Ursula. They couldn't be smart enough to cover their traces in the web. Not if they were really as newbie as they seemed. Even a net shark ace would have been caught by now. And these girls were fighting nowhere near his weight. Must be a glitch. It didn't matter. I know what you do. Not did, but do. Did is good for specifics. But do suggests something ongoing. Some hidden current in an ordinary life. Perhaps unknown either to the user. You are not what you claim to be. That was for sure. You are not what you claim to be. You are not what you claim to be, interpreted Miss Walter David. She had become quickly skilled at picking out the spirit's peculiar, abbreviated language. It was rather irritating, thought Irene. She was in danger of losing the sitter, of becoming the one in need of guidance. There was something odd about Mastermind. He, and it was surely a he, was unlike other spirits, who were mostly vague children. Everything they spelled out was simplistic yet ambiguous. She had to help them along, to tease out from the morass of waffle, whatever it was they wanted to communicate with those left behind, or more often to intuit what it was her sitters wanted or needed most to hear, and to shape her reading of the messages to fit. Her fortune was built not on reaching the other world, 
but in manipulating it so that the right communications came across. No sitter really wanted to hear a loved one had died a meaningless death and drifted in limbo, gradually losing personality like a cloud breaking up. Though occasionally she had sitters who wanted to know that those they had hated in life were suffering properly in the beyond and that their miserable post-mortem apologies were not accepted. Such transactions disturbed even her, though they often proved among the most rewarding financially. Now Irene sensed a concrete personality. Even through almost coded, curt phrases, Mastermind was a someone, not a something. For the first time, she was close to being afraid of what she had touched. Mastermind was ambiguous, but through intent rather than fumble thinking, she had a powerful impression of him from his self-chosen title, a man on a throne, head swollen and limbs atrophied, belly bloated like a balloon, framing vast schemes, manipulating lesser beings like chess pieces. She was warier of him than even of the rare angry spirit she had called into her circle. There were defences against him, though. She'd been careful to make sure of that. Ugly hell gapes, she remembered from Dr Faustus. Well, not for her. She thought Mastermind was not a spirit at all. You are all one. You are all one, interpreted Miss Walter David. What can that mean? You are alone. That was not a cryptic statement from the beyond. Before discovering her gift, Irene Dobson had toiled in an insurance office. She knew a typewriting mistake when she saw one. You are afraid. You are at... Yes, Miss Walter David, I understand. And are you? Not any more. Mastermind, you're a most interesting fellow. Yet I cannot but feel you conceal more than you reveal. We are all, at our worst, alone and afraid. That is scarcely a great insight. It was the secret of her profession, after all. Are you not also alone and afraid? Nothing. Let me put it another way. She pressed down on the planchette and manipulated it, spelling out in his own language. Are you not also alone and afraid? She would have added a question mark, but the Ouija board had none. Spirits never asked questions, just supplied answers. Irene D. was sharper than he had first guessed, and he still knew no more about her, no matter. Boyd rolled over to the next keyboard. You tell him, girl. Back off, creep. Irene D. 
another presence, how refreshing. And you might be... Caress sister. Irene D. Another spirit. Presence. Spirit. Was she taking the piss? Uh-huh. Spirit. That's the stuff. Show that pig you can stand up for yourself. Irene D. Another presence, but the same mode of address. I think your name might be Legion. Void knew of another net shark who used Legion as a log-on. Irene D. must have come across him too. Not the virgin she seemed then. Damn. His search still couldn't penetrate further than her simple log-on. By now he should have her mother's maiden name, her menstrual calendar, the full name of the first boy she snogged at school, and a list of all the porn sites she had accessed in the last week. He should close down the room, seal it up forever and scuttle away. But he was being challenged, which didn't happen often. Usually he was content to play a while with those he snared, scrambling their heads with what he'd found out about them as his net noose drew torture around them. Part of the game was to siphon a little from their bank accounts. Someone had to pay his phone and access bills, and he was damned if he should cough up by direct debit like some silly little newbie. But mostly it was for sport. In the early days, he had been fond of co-opting idents and flooding his playmate systems with extreme porn, or placing orders in their names for expensive but embarrassing goods and services. That now seemed crude. His current craze was doctoring and posting images. If Irene D was married, it would be interesting to direct her husband to, say, a goat sex site where her face was convincingly overlaid upon an enthusiastic animal lover's body. And it was so easy to mock up mug shots, complete with guilty looks and serial numbers, to reveal an ineptly suppressed criminal past, complete with court records and other supporting documentation that would make an employer think... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Twice about keeping someone on their books. No one ever bothered to double-check by going back to the paper archives before they downsized the job. Always he would leave memories to cherish. Months later, he would check up on his net pals. His score so far was five institutionalizations and two suicides, just to see that the experience was still vivid. He was determined to crawl into Irene D's skull and stay there, replicating like a virus, wiping her hard drive. Ursula W.D. Do you know Frank? Frank, Connie Hay Mars. Where did that come from? Still, there couldn't be many people floating around with a name like that. Boyd shut off the fruitless backdoor search and copied the double-barreled name into an engine. It came up instantly with a handful of matches. The first was an obituary from 1919, scanned into a newspaper database. A foolish virgin had purchased unlimited access to a great many similar archives, which were now open to Boyd. A local newspaper, the Ham and High. He was surprised. It was the World Wide Web, after all. This hit was close to home, maybe only streets away, if eighty years back. He looked over the abit and took a flyer. Dead of flu. Ursula W.D. Yes, she knows Frank, Madame Irina, a miracle. Have you a message from Frank? For Ursula. Boyd speed read the abit. Frank, Connie Hay Mars, decorated in the late conflict, etc., etc. Dead at 38. Engaged to a Miss Ursula Walter David of this parish. Could the woman be still alive? She'd have to be well over a hundred. He launched another search. Ursula Walter David. Three matches. One, the Connie Hay Mars obit he already had up. Second, an article from something called The Temple from 1924, a publication of the Spiritualist Church. Third, also from the Hammond High Archive, her own obit from 1952. Zoic Scooby, a Ghost? This was an elaborate sting. Had to be. He would string it along to give him time to think. You will be together again, 1952. The article from the temple was too long and close printed to read in full, while his formidable attention was divided into three or four windows. It had been scanned in badly and not all of it was legible. The gist was a testimonial for a spiritualist medium 
called Madame Irina, no last name given. Among her sitters, satisfied customers evidently, was Ursula Walter David. Weird. Boyd suspected he was being set up. He didn't trust the matches. They must be plants. Though he couldn't see the joins. He knew that with enough work, he could run something like this. Had indeed done so, feeding prospects their own mocked-up-o bits with full gruelsome details to get someone. Was this a vengeance crusade? If so, he couldn't see where it was going. He tried a search on Madame Irina and came up with hundreds of matches, mostly French and porn sites. A BDSM video titled The Lash of Madame Irina accounted for most of the matches. He tried pairing Plus Madame Irina with Plus Spiritualist and had a more manageable 15 matches, including several more articles from the temple. Ursula W.D. Is Frank at peace? He had to subdivide his concentration again. He wasn't quite ambidextrous, but could pump a keyboard with either hand, working shift keys with his thumbs, and split his mind into segments, eyes rolling independently like a lizard's, to follow several lines. Frank is over his sniffles. Among the Madame Irina slash medium matches was a journal of the Society of Psychical Research, piece from 1926, shoutlined, Fraudulence Alleged. He opened it up and found from a news and brief snippet that a court case was being prepared against one Irene Dobson, known professionally as Madame Irina, for various malpractices in connection with her work as a spirit medium. One, Catriona Kay, a serious researcher, was quoted as being in no doubt of the woman's genuine psychical abilities, but also sure she had employed them in an unethical, indeed dangerous manner. Another match was a court record. He opened it a declaration of the suit against Irene Dobson. Scrolling down, he found it frustratingly incomplete. The document set out what was being tried, but didn't say how the case came out. A lot of old records were like that, incompletely scanned. Usually he only had current files to open and process. He looked again at the legal rigmarole, and his eye was caught by Irene Dobson's address. The Laburnums, Feldspar Road, Highgate. This was 26 Feldspar Road. There were big bushes outside. If he ran a search for Laburnum JPEG, he was sure he'd get a visual match. Irene Dobson lived in this house. No, she had lived in this house. In the 1920s, before it was converted into flats. When it had a name, not a number. Now she was dead. 
Whoever was running this unboyed knew where he lived. He was not going to take that. This new presence, said Miss Walter David, it's quite remarkable. There was no new presence, no caress. Irene would have felt a change and hadn't. This was one presence with several voices. She had heard of such, invariably malign. She should call an end to the seance, plead fatigue. But Ursula Walter David would never come back, and the husbandless woman had a private income and nothing to spend it on but the beyond. At the moment, she was satisfied enough to pay heavily for Irene's services. She decided to stay with it despite the dangers. Rewards were within reach. She was determined, however, to treat this cunning spirit with extreme caution. He was a tiger posing as a pussycat. She focused on the centre of the board and was careful with the planchette, never letting its point stray beyond the ring of letters. Caress, said Miss Walter David, a tremble. May I speak with Frank? Caress was supposed to be a woman, but Irene thought the first voice, mastermind, closer to the true personality. In 52. Why 52? It seems a terribly long way off. When you die. That did it. Miss Walter David pulled away as if bitten. Irene considered. It seemed only too likely that the sitter had been given the real year of her death. That was a cruel stroke. Typical of the malign spirit. The presence was a prophet. Irene had heard of a few such spirits. One of the historical reasons for consulting mediums was to discern the future, but never come across one. Could it be that the spirits had true foreknowledge of what was to come? Or did they inhabit a realm outside time and could look in at any point in human history, future as well as past, and pass on what they saw? Miss Walter David was still impressed, but less pleased. The planchette circled almost entirely of its own accord. Irene could have withdrawn her fingers, but the spirit was probably strong enough to move the pointer without her. It certainly raced ahead of her push. She had to keep the planchette in the circle. Irene. Not Irina. Dobson. Now she was frightened, but also annoyed. A private part of her person had been exposed. This was an insult and an attack. Who's Dobson? asked Miss Walter David. She is. It's my name, Irene admitted. That's no secret. Isn't it? Where are you? she asked. Here. There. Everywhere. 
no, here and there perhaps, but not everywhere. This was a strange spirit. He had aspirations to omnipotence, but something about him was overreaching. He called himself Mastermind, which suggested a streak of self-deluding vanity. Knowledge wasn't wisdom. She had a notion that if she asked him to name this year's Derby winner, he would be able to furnish the correct answer, an idea with possibilities, but that he could reveal precious little of what came after death. An insight struck her. This was not a departed spirit. This was a living man. Living. But where? No. When? What date is it, she asked. Good question. Since this must be a sting, there was no harm in the truth. Jan, 2001. Irene D. 1901. N. 2001. Ursula W. D. I thought time had no meaning in the world beyond. Irene D. That depends which world beyond our guest might inhabit. Boyd had run searches on Irene Dobson and his own address, independent and cross-matching. Too many matches were coming up. He wished more people had names like Frank, Connie K. Mars, and fewer like Irene Dobson. Boyd Waylow, his birth name was a deep secret. His accounts were all in names like John Barrett and Andrew Lee. Beyond the ring of monitors, his den was dark. This was the largest room in what had once been a Victorian townhouse and was now divided into three flats. Was this where Madame Irene had held her seances? His raised ground-floor flat might encompass the old parlour. He was supposed to believe he was in touch with the past. One of the Irene Dobson matches was a JPEG. He opened the picture file and looked into a small, determined face. Not his type, but surprising and striking. Her hair was covered by a turban, and she wore a Chinese-style jacket buttoned up to the throat. She looked rather prosperous, and was smoking a black cigarette in a long white holder. The image was from 1927. Was that when she was supposed to be talking to him from? What date for you? Irene D. January 13, 1923, of course. Maybe he was supposed to bombard her with questions about the period, to try and catch her out in an anachronism. But he'd only general knowledge, prohibition in America, a general strike in Britain, talking pictures in 1927, the Lindenberg flight somewhere earlier, the stock market crash a year or two later, thoroughly modern Millie and P.G. Woodhouse. 
not a lot of use. He couldn't even remember who was Prime Minister in January 1923. He could get answers from the net in moments, though. Knowing things was pointless, compared with knowing how to find things out. At the moment, that didn't help him. Whoever these women were, or rather, whoever this Irene D was, for Ursula W.D. plainly didn't count, he was sure that they'd have the answers for any questions he came up with. What was the point of this? He could get to Irene D. Despite everything, he had her. She was in his room. She was his prey and meat, and he would not let her challenge him. I see you. I see you. I see you. Irene thought that was a lie, but Mastermind could almost certainly hear her, though, as with real spirits, she wondered if the words came to him as human sounds or in some other manner. The parlour was almost completely dark save for a cone of light about the table. Miss Walter David was terrified, on the point of fleeing. That was for the best. But there was a service Irene needed of her. She did not say it out loud, for Mastermind would hear. He said he could see, but she thought she could conceal her hand from him. It was an awkward move, she put the fingers of her left hand on the shivering planchette, which was racing inside the circle, darting at the letters, trying to break free. I see you, I.D. I see you are Frit. She slipped a pocketbook out of her cardigan, opened it one-handed, and pressed it to her thigh with the heel of her hand, while extracting the pencil from the spine with her fingernails. It was not an easy thing to manage. You are frit and fraud. This was just raving. She wrote a note blind. She was trusting Miss Walter David to read her scrawl. It was strange what mattered. This is no longer caress, she said trying to keep her voice steady. Have we another visitor? Too true. I'm Snake. I'm? Aha, I'm Snake. Yet another speaker of this peculiar dialect with unconventional ideas about spelling. Miss Walter David was backing away. She was out of her seat, retreating into darkness. Irene offered her the pocketbook, opened the message. The sitter didn't want to take it. She opened her mouth. Irene shook her head, shushing her. Miss Walter David took the book and peered in the dark. Irene was afraid the silly goose would read out loud, but she at least half understood. On a dresser nearby was a tea tray with four glasses of distilled water and four curls of chain. Bicycle chain, as it happened. Irene had asked Miss Walter David to bring the tray to the Ouija board. Snake, 
Do you know things? Things yet to happen? Too true. A useful accomplishment. NDD. Indeed. Too writ. There was a clatter. Miss Walter David had withdrawn. Irene wondered if she would pay for the seance. She might. After all, there had been results. She had learned something, though nothing to make her happy. Miss Walter David will die in 1952. Why? Back to why. She preferred that to too true and too writ. Of what? A pause. P-N-E-U. Pneumonia, thank you. Her arm was getting worn out, dragged around the circle. Her shoulder ached. Doing this one-handed was not easy. She had already set out the glasses at the four points of the compass and was working on the chains. It was important that the ends be dipped in the glasses to make the connections, but that the two ends in each glass not touch. This was more like physics and spiritualism, but she understood it made sense. What else do you know? You are fraud. I don't think so. Tell me about the future. Not 2001. The useful future. Within the next five or ten years. Stock. Market. Crash. 29. That's worth knowing. You can tell me about stocks and shares. Why? It was subject of which she knew nothing, but she could learn. She had an idea that there were easier and less obtrusive fortunes to be made there than Derby winners. But she would get the names out of him too. Horse races? A hesitation. Why? The presence was less frisky, sliding easily about the circle, not trying to break free. This year's Derby. A simple search, plus Epsom, plus Derby, plus Winner, plus 1923-Kentucky, had no matches. He took out Kentucky and had a few hits and an explanation. Papyrus, the 1923 winner, was the first horse to run in both the Epsom and Kentucky Derby races, though the nag lost in the States, scuppering a possible chance for a nice long-shot accumulator bet if he really was giving a woman from the past a hot tip on the future. Boyd fed that all to Irene D, still playing along, still not seeing the point. She received slowly, as if her system were taking one letter at a time. Click. It wasn't a monitor. It was a Ouija board. That was what he was supposed to think. Irene D. I'm going to give you another name. I should like you to tell me what you know of this man. OK. Irene D. Anthony Torgarth, also 
Basil and Florence Tallgarth. He ran multiple searches and got a cluster of matches, mostly from the twenties, though there were birth and death announcements from the 1860s through to 1968, and again mostly from the Hammond High. He picked one, dated February 2nd, 1923, and opened the article. Tycoon finds lost son. Irene D. Where is Antony? Now. According to the article, Antony was enlisted in the Royal Navy as an able seaman under the name of T.A. Meredith, stationed at Portsmouth and due to ship out aboard the HMS Ducket. He had parted from his wealthy parents after a scandal and a quarrel. Since the brat had gone into the Navy, Boyd Betty was gay, but been discovered through the efforts of a noted local spiritualist and Cyrus. A reconciliation was effected. He'd had enough of this game. He wasn't going to play any more. He rolled back in his chair and hit an invisible wall. Irene D. I shall tell you, Mastermind, that you are bound with iron and holy water. I shall extend your circle if you cooperate. He tried reaching out through the wall and his hand was bathed with pain. Irene D. I do not know how you feel, if you can feel, but I will wager that you do and care not for this. It was as if she was watching him. Him! Irene D. Now be a good little ghosty and tell me what I wish to know. With his right hand lodged in his left armpit as the pain went away, he made keystrokes with his left hand, transferring the information she needed. It took a long time, a letter at a time. Irene D. There must be a way of replacing this board with a typewriter. That would be more comfortable for you, would it not? F.O., he typed. A lash at his back as the wall constricted. She'd understood that. Was that a very 1923 womanly quality? Irene D. Manners, manners. If you are good to me... I shall let you have the freedom of this room, maybe this floor. I can procure longer chains. He was a shark in a play pool, furious and humiliated and in pain. And he knew it would last. Mr and Mrs Tallgarth had been most generous. She could afford to give Mastermind the run of the parlour, and took care to refresh his water bindings each day. This was not a task she would ever entrust to the new maid. The key to the parlour was about Irene's person at all times. People would pay to be in contact with the dead, but they would pay more for other services, information of more use in the here and now. And she had a good line on all manner of things. She had been testing Mastermind and found him a useful source 
about a wide variety of subjects, from the minutiae of any common person's life to the great matters which were to come in the rest of the century. Actually, knowing which horse would win any year's derby was a comparatively minor advantage. Papyrus was bound to be the favourite, and the race was too famous for any fortune to be made. She had her genie working on long-shot winners of lesser races, and was sparing in her use of the trick. Bookmakers were the sort of sharp people she understood only too well, and would soon tumble to any streak of unnatural luck. From now on, for a great many reasons, she intended to be as unobtrusive as possible. This morning she had been making a will. She had no interest in the disposal of her assets after death, when she herself ventured beyond the veil, for she intended to make the most of them whilst alive. The entirety of her estate was left to her firm of solicitors, on the unusual condition that when she passed, no record or announcement of her death be made, even on her gravestone. It was not beyond possibility that she mightn't make it to 2001, though she knew she would be gone from this house by then. From now on, she would be careful about official mentions of her name. To be nameless, she understood, was to be invisible to mastermind, and she needed her life to be shielded from him as his was from hers. The man had intended her harm, but he was her genie now, in her bottle. She sat at the table and put her hands on the planchette, feeling the familiar press of resistance against her. Is there anybody there? Why, 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 why? Temper, temper, mastermind. Today I should like to know more about stocks and shares. Food was brought to him from the online grocery, handed over at the front door. He was a shut-in forever now. He couldn't remember the last time he'd stepped outside his flat. It had been days before, Irene D, maybe weeks. It wasn't like he had ever needed to post a letter or go to a bank. Boyd had found the chains. They were still here, fixed into the skirting boards, running under the doorway, rusted at the ends where the water traps had been. It didn't matter that the water had run out years ago. He was still bound. Searches told him little more of Irene Dobson. At least he knew someone would have her in court in four years' time, a surprise he would let her have, but he had no hopes that she would be impeded. He had found traces of her well into the 1960s, Lastly, a piece from 1968 that didn't use her name but did mention her guiding spirit, Mastermind, to whom she owed so much over the course of her long 
and successful career as a medium, seeress and psychic sleuth. From 1923 to 1968, 45 years, real time. The link was constant, and he moved forward as she did, a day for a day. Irene Dobson's spirit guide had stayed with her at least that long. Not forever. 45 years. He had tried false information, hoping to ruin her. If she was cast out of her house, though she was still in it, in 1927, he remembered, he would be free. But she always saw through it and could punish him. He had tried going silent, shutting everything down. But he always had to boot up again, to be online. It was more than a compulsion. It was a need. In theory, he could stop paying electricity and phone bills, rather stop other people paying his, and be cut off eventually. But in theory, he could stop himself breathing and suffocate. It just wasn't in him. His meat had rarely left the house anyway, and as a reward for telling her for the extramarital private habits of a husband, whose avaricious wife was a one of her sitters, she had extended his bindings to the hallway and, thank heaven, the toilet. She had his full attention. Irene D., is there anybody there? Why, damn it, why? I've bumped into Kim a few times at conventions. We've spoken, but don't know each other. Well, she doesn't know me. Kim was born in London, but raised in Somerset, England. Uh, in addition to writing fiction, he's a journalist and film critic. Uh, recurring interests visible in his work include film history and horror fiction, both of which he attributes to seeing Todd Browning's Dracula at age seven. And alternate fictional versions of history— He's won the Bram Stoker Award, the International Horror Guild Award, and the British Science Fiction Association Award. Kim likes to reinterpret historical figures uh, in his fiction, particularly those from the entertainment industry. He also likes to put other authors' characters in new settings, realistic alternate history or outright fantasy. Some of these, Dracula, for example, are easily recognized. Many, particularly minor characters, are deliberately obscured. Think of them as Easter eggs for the perceptive reader. Thank you, Kim. And thank you, Kim Lakin-Smith. That Kim, our reader tonight, is the author of Tourniquet, Tales from the Renegade City, Cyber Circus, and the young adult novella Queen Rat, her fantasy and science fiction short stories have appeared in Black Static, Interzone, Celebration, Misunderstandings, Further Conflicts, Pandemonium, Stories of the Apocalypse, and others. Her Johnny and Emmy Lou Get Married was shortlisted for the British Science Fiction Association Short Story Award in 2009. 
Kim has a background in performance and is a regular guest speaker at writing workshops and conventions. That's beautiful work tonight, Kim. We'd love to have you back. And there is one more thing before we separate for the night, and an important thing it is, too. I want to thank Alexandra Mironova for pledging a monthly donation to Tales to Terrify. We want to keep this little dark room open and available to you at any time, day or night, and want it to be without ads muddling the walls. But, of course, it takes money to keep things free. And that's going to have to come from, as Tennessee Williams said, the kindness of strangers. Oh, okay, we're not strangers anymore. We're a little bit like family. So, from one child of the night to the rest of you out there, please click on the little buttons and give. And there we are. Another evening done and gone forever. I want to thank everyone who contributed tonight, the authors who gave us their sweats and dreams, the narrators who gave their voices and heart, Tony, Harry, Church, who assembled the bits and pieces, and... You, of course, you who came to listen. This is Lawrence Santoro, hoping you have a safe walk home under the seeing stars. And good night. And, of course, pleasant dreams. <laughs> <laughs> 